Well, good morning. My name's Clay Baker. I'm the Burlington Campus Pastor. It's my privilege to be preaching to you this morning. Thanks for braving the rain to be here. I'm glad you're here. This is the place to be. When I was in uh, college, I was involved with the campus ministry, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, or CRU. And there was a period of time there when I was seriously considering joining the staff of CRU after college. And I was wrestling with that decision because I felt this general call into the ministry, but I didn't really think CRU was the best fit for me. At the same time, though, uh, I was kind of felt a sense of obligation to CRU because they had invested so much in me and I had benefited so much from their ministry. So one day I was processing this with a crew staff member, and he helped me think about it in a very different way. He said that uh, God is at work in the world. He's doing a big work, drawing people to himself, bringing them into his kingdom. And crew was a part of that, and he was having a blast being a part of crew, so he didn't want me to feel like obligated to join crew. He wanted me to feel invited invited to join him in a work that God is doing. That was really helpful for me. That was really helpful for me to see that in the story of my life and in the big picture story of life, that God is at the center of the story. He's the one working and I'm invited to be part of his work, whether that was with crew or somewhere else. I thought about that this week as we studied, or as I studied our passage for this morning, Acts chapter 13. We're going to be in Acts 13 this morning. You can turn there now. We've seen in our study of Acts that God is the actor. God's at the center of the story of Acts. He's the one who's moving out from Jerusalem, through Judea, through Samaria, taking his gospel, his light, his transforming presence to the end of the earth. And his people are privileged and blessed by that work as they receive his good news and come into his kingdom. And they're privileged and blessed to be part of that good work to proclaim his gospel to people that desperately need to hear it. And in Acts 13, we're gonna see this church in Antioch that gets it. They get it. They are a church plant in what is today Southern Turkey. They're growing, they're thriving, they're diverse. They've got Jewish believers, Gentile believers. They come from different nationalities, classes, backgrounds. And in our story, we find them worshiping God. They're worshiping God in response to the work that he has done and is doing in them. And they're seeking his will for their next step in his mission. They recognize that God is at the center of the story. And in Acts 13, we're going to see God once again take center stage. And as we read through our passage, I'm going to point out three ways in which God, and specifically the Holy Spirit, is at the center of the life at the church in Antioch and in the missionaries that they send out. And that is that these people are spirit-dependent, spirit-filled, and spirit-illuminated. Spirit-dependent, spirit-filled, spirit-illuminated, and these three things we should desperately want to be true of ourselves as well. All right, let's begin by reading Acts chapter 13. We're going to read the first three verses. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, 
Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I don't think it's any coincidence that the Holy Spirit speaks to the church in Antioch when they are worshiping, fasting, and praying. You know, Acts 13 is a go-to passage for missions, but what we see in Acts 13 is that worship is at the heart of missions. Pastor John Piper reminds us of this in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. You see, worship is both the beginning and the end of missions. God deserves to be worshiped by everyone, everywhere, and because he's not, well, then the church has a mission. They've got a mission. In Antioch, we see that God has created this worshiping community. But he's not content with that because he wants there to be more worshiping communities all over the world. And so the Holy Spirit shows up while these people, while this church is worshiping. And he gives them a mission. He tells them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for him, for the work to which he has called them. God deserves to be worshiped. He desires to be worshiped. And so he is at work multiplying worshiping communities. What we do here when we gather together as a body of believers on Sunday mornings is at the very heart, it's at the very center of God's plan for salvation for the world. All of our lives should be acts of worship for God, but there's really something special about when his body, his people gather together to sing, to pray, to serve, to give, to hear the preaching of his word, to baptize, to take communion together. This act of corporate worship, there's something special about that time. And I hope that if coming to church has lost some of its savor for you, then I hope that that love for church for worship, for worshiping together with the body would be reignited by what we're reading and seeing this morning from God's word. Corporate worship is the fuel of missions. It's the source of missionaries and it's the end goal of missions. So if you care anything at all about God's plan to save a lost and dying world, then you'll care deeply about corporate worship. I must share that one of the aspects of corporate worship that we see in the church in Antioch that I found most convicting is the F word, fasting, fasting. These folks are fasting. They are intentionally, temporarily depriving themselves of food in order to emphasize or heighten or underline or increase their dependence on God. 
They are spirit-dependent people. Jesus said after 40 days of fasting that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Our culture tells us that when we need to get something done, then we need to get to work. But Jesus tells us that apart from me, you can do nothing. When the Holy Spirit spoke to the church in Antioch, they didn't start drawing up their missions plans. They didn't start strategizing. They didn't start raising money. No, what did they do? They continued to fast and they continued to pray. They recognized their dependence on God for everything and they continued to seek his direction. They were spirit dependent. My tendency, I must confess, is to Act first, pray later, and fast rarely. It's it's really a failure on my part to fully appreciate how much I depend on God. And so I'm convicted after reading God's word and sitting under it this week as I prepared that I need to make fasting a more regular part of my life. And if that's ringing true for any of you this morning, and I imagine it is for some of you, I've I've heard some chuckles then I invite you to join me in that. I invite you to join me in growing together in our sense of dependence on God and specifically by taking the practical step of fasting. All right, well, now that we're all hungry, let's move on in our passage. We'll uh, pick up, well, we're gonna pick up in verse six, but what happens in verse four and five is that Saul and Barnabas are sent out by the Holy Spirit. They sail to Cyprus, which is an island in the Eastern Mediterranean, And they go throughout the island proclaiming the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And so now we will pick up in verse 6 and read through verse 12. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, and that'd be like the Roman governor, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, that's Bar-Jesus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was filled, who was also called Paul, excuse me, was filled with the Holy Spirit looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You know, we might not see it on the surface of our text, but what's going on here between Paul and this guy named Bar-Jesus is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. It's easy for us to overlook this as modern readers because our culture values scientific and natural observable explanations for everything. But the Bible tells us that God is spirit 
and that there are spiritual forces at work in creation for both good and for evil. There's this nonprofit group called The Bible Project. They make uh, short animated videos about the Bible and they post them online. I really enjoy them. And they did a recent ser- uh, series of these videos on spiritual beings. And one of the ones they featured was called The Satan. Now they called it The Satan because that's how it appears in the original languages of scripture. And because Satan isn't really a name, it's a title and it means adversary. You see, an adversary is someone who is opposed to something. And so the adversary or the Satan is opposed to everything that God is for. And we see in our passage that there's this false prophet magician named Bar-Jesus, which ironically means son of Jesus. But he's no son of Jesus. He's opposed to Paul and Barnabas sharing the gospel, and he's seeking to turn the proconsul away from accepting the faith. And so Paul calls him exactly what he is, and that's son of the devil. 1 Peter 5.8 says that our adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's at work right now. He opposes our efforts to proclaim the gospel and he seeks to turn everyone away from receiving the faith. So how did Paul defeat this spiritual enemy, the adversary? Well, we see that Paul defeated him because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's verse nine. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit lives in every believer. God himself lives in every believer. He indwells us. That's a wonderful, beautiful truth. But when we see in scripture that someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, then we see the Spirit present and working in a powerful way. And that's what's going on here. And I don't know about you, but I wanna be filled with the Holy Spirit. I I want that. That should be something we all want, right? So then the big question is, how? How can we be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, like we could ask God, of course, to fill us with his spirit. And that's, that's good. I do that often. Lord, fill me with your spirit. But I think there's a connection in scripture, a strong one, between being filled with God's spirit and being filled with his word. You see, we see in our passage that Paul and Barnabas at this time, when Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit, they were, what were they doing? They were proclaiming the word of God. They were proclaiming the word. In Luke 4, it says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and he's being tempted by the devil. And how does he defeat the devil's temptations when he's full of the Holy Spirit? He quotes scripture to the devil every time. In fact, that's what he was doing in that quote I already read to you uh, about uh, man not living by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 to the devil. He was full of the Holy Spirit and he was full of God's word. And then we see in Ephesians 6, classic passage about spiritual battles. Paul urges us to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And what is our weapon? It's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 
If we want to be filled with God's spirit, we need to be filled with God's word. A friend of mine, Matt Granquist, who's an elder here at the church, he just told me last week, he says, if I have to eat three times a day because my stomach is hungry, then how starving must my soul be if I go even one day without feeding from God's word? That's a good point. I encourage all of us to make our Bible reading a daily habit. So this wasn't always true for me. But one thing I have found very helpful is if I pair my Bible reading with something that I'm already doing every day, and for me, that was drinking my morning cup of coffee. I never miss the morning cup of coffee. And so I set my Bible out on the counter right next to where I have my morning cup of coffee, and now those two things always go hand in hand. They always go together. So I don't know what that would be for you. It might be your morning cup of coffee or it might be listening to the word while you drive to work or while you run or while you do whatever. But whatever it is, if you pair your Bible reading with something you're already doing daily, that can be very helpful in making your Bible reading a daily habit. And I think that is essential if we want to be filled with God's spirit. If we want to be spirit-filled people, we need to be filled with God's word, and we need that if we're going to stand against the schemes of the devil. Well, the last and longest section of our chapter, verses 13 through 52, we sadly will not have time to read word for word. But what we see there is Paul and Barnabas, they move on from Cyprus and they travel to a city called Antioch in Pisidia. Now, this is a different Antioch from the one where they started their journey. They're both in modern-day Turkey, but they're about 300 miles apart in terms of straight-line distance. So they're just different towns, both named Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas arrive, and then they go and they preach the gospel first to the Jews in the synagogues. They preach the gospel first to the Jews, and that is their pattern anytime they go to a new city to proclaim God's word. And that makes sense because most of this book is about God's dealings with the Jews. And so it's right and good and natural that the Jewish people would be the first to hear the good news of Jesus, the one who fulfilled their law and the one whom all the prophets were pointing to and the one they were all waiting for, their Messiah, their Savior. And so Paul goes and preaches to the Jews first, and he proclaims this good news to them that God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. That's verse 23. And then he testifies that Jesus was crucified, though he had done nothing wrong, and that even though he was put to death, He was raised by God from the dead. And then in verse 38, he says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law of Moses could lead to life if they followed it. But because of sin, they didn't follow it and they couldn't follow it and no one could. 
until Jesus. Jesus came and he fulfilled every righteous requirement of the law. He lived the life that we could not on our behalf. And he died for us in our place, the death that we deserve. And now, Paul is telling them now, because he rose again, because he died and rose again for them, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins and freedom from the bondage to sin and death. That's good news, amen? Amen. Amen. If you're hearing this good news now, And maybe this is the first time you've heard this good news, or maybe it's the hundredth time you've heard this good news, but if you have not received this good news in faith, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus to receive his forgiveness and his freedom from sin and death, I urge you to do it now. Don't miss this opportunity as you hear the good news fall fresh on you to turn to Jesus Confess your sins to him. Confess your sinfulness to him, your need for him to be your savior and place all your faith, all your trust, all your hope in him to save you. It's his death and his resurrection in your place that saves you. He is the son of God become man to die for you. Believe in him, believe on him, believe him for everything. And he will grant you forgiveness of sins and eternal life with him. Don't miss this opportunity to place your faith in Jesus today. Sadly, tragically, Paul's Jewish audience largely rejected this good news. And this broke Paul's heart. It broke his heart. He would later write in his letter to the Romans, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul's heart is broken because if anyone were going to receive Jesus, it should have been them. It should have been his kinsmen in the flesh, his brothers, the Jews. And their rejection of him, not entirely, there were Jews who believed, Paul is one of them, but largely their rejection of him is a tragedy. He goes on later in Romans to identify the problem. And he says this, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He says they lacked knowledge. He says they were ignorant 
of the righteousness that was being offered to them that could be imputed to them on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection through their faith. They were ignorant of this, but it wasn't because they didn't know or hadn't heard those truths. He had preached it to them. It's because they were in a state of spiritual darkness and they refused to accept to receive the light of Jesus. We all are born into this world in spiritual darkness. Paul will say elsewhere in Romans, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks for God, no one understands. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, we can't know God unless the light of God shines through our darkness and gives us understanding. We all need to be spirit illuminated. Those of us who, like it says in Colossians 1.13, those of us who have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son have had God's light shine through in our darkness so that we would be able to respond to it in faith. We all need the light of God. We all need to be spirit illuminated. It's by grace that we're saved. It's by grace. We need to pray then that those who are lost would be spirit illuminated. We need to pray that the lost would be spirit illuminated and we need to pray that we would be spirit illuminated lights to them. Paul prayed specifically for Holy Spirit illumination for believers in Ephesians chapter one, Colossians chapter one, and Philippians chapter one. And now this benefits us believers greatly, of course, because as we are illuminated by God's spirit, as we grow in in the grace and knowledge of him, we are being transformed by God's spirit more and more into the image of Jesus. And that is wonderful and that is beautiful, amen? Amen. But our spiritual illumination, which Paul prays specifically for as believers, it also has great benefit for unbelievers because as the light of God shines more brightly in us, then the light of God shines more brightly into the darkness of those who do not believe. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light shines in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory and to give others that same light. The more the spirit illuminates our hearts with the light of God's truth, the more brightly the light of the glory and good news of Jesus will shine through us to those who need to receive him. And we see in our story, back to Acts 13, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened, not for the Jews, sadly, tragically, but for the Gentiles. In verse 
46, we see that the Jews have rejected the gospel. Paul says they've thrust it aside and judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And so behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. And then in verse 47, he says, for so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's a prophecy. That's a prophecy from Isaiah. Jesus is the light and Paul's saying that God's made him and Barnabas and us the light. And so the light of Jesus is shining through us. Verse 48 says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Now there was some persecution stirred up by some of the Jews there against Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul and Barnabas were driven out of the city and they left for a new city, Iconium, which we'll talk about next week. But even in spite of this persecution, verse 52, the last verse of our passage says, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit illuminated the hearts of Paul and Barnabas through their worshiping, through their fasting, through their praying, through their being filled with God's word, the Spirit's light shined through them and to the darkness of the Gentiles who did not know him. This light was rejected by some, but it was accepted by others. And even through persecution, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And thus we come full circle in our story. Our story started with the Holy Spirit, And it ended with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God's at the center of the story. At the beginning of the sermon, I talked about being invited into a work that God is doing. As dark as it may seem out there, God is working. Someone who was preparing to be a missionary told me that she went to a conference for other people preparing to be missionaries. And she was really encouraged by this because she said it was like a marathon. Because like, when, I don't know this, by the way, I have to take her word for it. But when you prepare for a marathon, you're preparing by yourself. You're preparing alone and you might feel alone. But then when you show up on race day, you see the hundreds of people gathered there and they've all been preparing for the same race and they're all ready to run. They've been preparing right along you, even if you didn't know it. That was encouraging to her and it should be encouraging to us because God is at work to take the light of his gospel to the ends of the earth. And he is raising up men and women and he is calling them out and he is sending them and he's doing it. And we're invited to be part of that. We're invited to go and we're invited to send. At the beginning of our passage, we saw the church in Antioch. What were they doing? They were worshiping, fasting, and praying. What are we doing here? We've gathered to worship. We've talked about fasting. So now let's spend some time in prayer. I want to spend some time in prayer as a body gathered. The band's going to come out. They're going to play for a few minutes. And while they do, I'd like us to go before the Lord in prayer. And I want us to pray for three things specifically. 
In light of the fact that it's God who's at work to take his light to the ends of the earth, and in light of the fact that without God we can do nothing, I want us to pray that we would be spirit-dependent, spirit-filled, and spirit-illuminated. If we're going to be like the church in Antioch and see people from here raised up and sent out for God's glory, if we're going to see more Adam and Julie Martins, or if we're going to be the next Adam and Julie Martins, if we're going to answer God's call to go, then we need to be a people who are dependent on God and filled by him and illuminated by him. So if you came with someone today, I encourage you to pray together. If you're at home, I encourage you to pray with us. But whether you're together or alone or here or at home, just take a few minutes to pray for these things. And then I'll come back up and I'll close this in prayer.